I'm very thankful to be here. I'm very thankful to this congregation for all the work they do, not only in this study. They have been very generous to me and to many of you in foreign work and, of course, in their own local work here. And uh, we appreciate the congregation very, very much, and I'm very thankful uh, to be here. So for the last several years, we've been talking about working our way through Romans chapters 9 through 11, because I think that's a passage that we didn't have a whole lot of understanding about. And today, we want to talk about God's olive tree. Israel's rejection is not final. Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. But first of all, what have we learned in Romans? In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul gives the theme of the book. And then he gives the outline to the first eight chapters. I always like to mention this because I like to point out that brevity sometimes is not all it's cracked up to be. The just shall live by faith is the first eight chapters of Romans. But it does leave you with several questions. And so Paul begins and talks about the just. Who needs to be justified is the first question. The Gentiles, the Jews, and Moses' law agrees with this. And so he concludes in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And then how can men be justified, or how can God be the just and the justifier of people? Uh, Romans 3, 21 to 31, God's grace justifies sinners on the basis of Jesus' sin offering and a person's obedient faith in Jesus. And finally, in that section, what is meant by faith, we need to have the kind of faith Abraham had. And then the second section of that first sentence, the just shall live by faith. How shall the justified believer live in his new relationship with God? Chapter 5, he lives free from God's wrath. Chapter 6, free from sin. Chapter 7, free from law as the justifying principle. And chapter 8, free from death. In chapters 9 through 11, everything in the first eight chapters hangs in the balance until the Jewish objection is answered, the Jews say, you cannot trust God anyway. He hasn't kept his promise to Israel. Uh, Israel stands rejected. And so in chapter 9, uh, Paul begins by pointing out that God is absolutely sovereign. He has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. The question is not, does he do those things? The question is, to whom does God show mercy, and whom does he harden? Also in chapter 9, Israel was not chosen as a nation for salvation. She was chosen as a nation to perform a service, and that was to bring the Messiah into the world. In chapter 9, 30 through 10:21, we move on to a consideration of individual Jews, the lost condition of the vast majority of Israel is the result, not of God's solemn eternal decree, but rather of their rejection of Jesus Christ and of the gospel. Then last year we talked about the beginning of Romans 11. Has God cast away his people? Are all Jews irredeemably lost? And of course the answer to that question is God has not cast away his people, but his people are the faithful Jews, the remnant who obey the gospel of Christ. 
Of course, all faithful Gentiles are his people also, but that is not the focus of this discussion. And so God wants uh, all Jews, every Jew, to be saved. So the question under consideration in chapter 11 is different from the one in chapter 9. There the question revolved around the establishment of God's faithfulness to his promises uh, for national Israel. In chapter 11, the focus is not on God's Old Testament purpose for Israel because Jesus has come. It is instead aimed at God's place for individual Jews living under the New Testament dispensation. Salvation and eternal destiny are the subjects of prominence now rather than service. And what is God's plan for Israel with regard to, the salvation, to their salvation in the Christian age? God no longer... Let me see if I'm... A... Yes, okay. Listen. Jason, if I get off on these slides, just tell me. Uh, God no longer plans to deal with Israel as a nation as he did in Old Testament times. He no longer used Israel for service. Those covenant relations were fulfilled when Jesus came. And God is now dealing with the Jews as individuals. In the New Testament age, he is gathering together the remnant, the new Israel or spiritual Israel, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe and obey the gospel. The unbelieving Jews have been partially hardened because they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah and the gospel. So that brings us to where we want to begin today. In Romans chapter 11, verse 11 and 12, the hardening of unbelieving Israel becomes a blessing. The opening words of verse 11 mark a new stage in Paul's argument. Clearly, there is a remnant, according to the election of grace, among individual ethnic Jews. But what is the ultimate fate of the vast majority of partially blinded or hardened Jews? Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Remember, they here is not the nation of Israel. It is the large majority of individual Jews who have not accepted the gospel and as a result have been hardened. Stumbled refers to going astray to sin. Should fall means to fall or be destroyed or be completely ruined. And Paul dramatically answers his question with certainly not. He does not say that Israel, however, has not stumbled nor that they have not fallen. In fact, the next phrase concedes a fall, and verse 22 reasserts this fact. Romans 11:22 uses the same word for fall as here, pipto. So this question can be misconstrued. The solution to this dilemma is that the connecting word between these two verbs is that, or hina, which means in order that. Hina can imply either purpose or result. The Calvinist loves to read this as implying purpose, meaning that God tripped the unbelieving Jews on purpose in order to cause them to fall. In other words, God had an agenda 
from eternity past and deliberately caused Israel to fall or stumble. And such a view is totally at odds with the biblical view of God's sovereignty and man's free will. Context. Both... Sorry. Context, both the immediate and the remote, demands that Hina be understood as stating a result rather than a purpose. So the question is, have they stumbled so as to be irredeemably fallen? And Paul's emphatic answer to that is no. A third word here, fall, uh, paraptomati, is used to describe the offense, wrongdoing, sin of the unbelieving Jews. Paul describes their fall as a three-step process. The first two steps result from the sinner's free will, and the last one is an act of God. The first step is their fall or transgression, and the word paraptomatoma is a word used frequently by Paul to denote sin. It means the same thing as stumbling in 11a. That is the stumbling over Christ. It is the same as unbelief in verse 20 and 23 and disobedience in verse 30. The second step is the Jews' fall in verse 11 and 8, called their failure in verse 12. This is not so much an act of the sinner, but rather a natural result of his sin. And the third step is God's punitive response to the first two steps. He hardened them. Uh, this is called his rejection of the Jews. In verse 15, they're being cast away. It is also called his act of breaking off or cutting off the unbelieving branches from his olive tree. In reference to the Jews' downfall, these three steps always occur together even when only one of them is explicitly referred to. Thus, when Paul mentions their fall or transgression in verse 11, he does not mean transgression alone. He means that because of their sin and encouragement uh, and consequent fall the res and the resultant hardening by God, salvation has come to the Gentiles. A graphic example in Acts 13 verses 41 to 15 is... Uh, explains this issue. It is God's hope that calling of the Gentiles to salvation will cause individual Jews to envy the Gentiles' blessings and rouse them to action in order to attain the same blessings for themselves by submitting themselves to the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Whether or not God's desire comes to fruition, that is that individual Jews will one by one accept the gospel in faithful obedience, now rests entirely with the free choices made by individual Jews living in the Christian age. Will this happen in the case of even one Jew? The answer to that is maybe, or we will see. There is no guarantee that, God will come, uh, that God's hope will come to pass, but he, that is God, has done what he can to affect it. 
It is at this juncture that many interpreters make the fantastic leap to prognosticate a future en masse conversion of the Jews to Christ before the second coming. Can this be correct? Well, let's consider verse 12. Now note that verse 12 says, now if the fall if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? You see all those translations that render this word their failure. The King James Version, the diminishing of them, is neither helpful nor accurate. These first two clauses reiterate the message of verse 11 and are used by Paul to set up the possibility of the last clause of verse 12. The transgression of the Jews in rejecting Jesus as their Savior resulted in great riches of salvation for the world, that is the Gentiles, by providing the impetus for gospel preachers to turn to the Gentiles with the gospel. In the second clause, the word hetema is often erroneously given a numerical connotation, diminishing, fewness, diminutiveness, reduction uh, to a small number. The King James does this here. There is no justification for attaching any numerical meaning to this word. The translation I listed all render this word as their failure, as their loss, Bedag says it means to be vanquished, to be defeated, to succumb, loss. Cottrell notes that the notion of Hatema carrying a numerical connotation is based upon the false assumption that the corresponding word in the third clause, fullness, is also numerical. It is not. Much of the weight of the false dispensational premillennial doctrine that predicts a mass conversion of Jews rests on these wrong concepts. What Paul is saying is that as a result of the Jews' rejection of Jesus, they have suffered the loss of their relationship with God as well as the loss of spiritual riches of Christ's kingdom, which are both enjoyed by the Gentiles who have obeyed the gospel. That riches refers to spiritual riches of salvation is made abundantly clear by a host of passages of Scripture. Paul envisions no mass conversion of Jews here, no matter how many dispensationalists insist that he does. First, neither failure nor fullness carry any numerical connotation at all. There is no connotation, let alone denotation, of numbers here. Second, it must be noted that in Romans 11 and 12, this is important, none of the three clauses here contains a verb. No verbs. Therefore, there are no tenses, meaning one cannot assign time, past, present, and especially future, to any of these three clauses. Consequently, it is impossible to discern from this verse any future in mass conversion of Jews. The words paso malone, rendered correctly how much more, clearly indicate a comparison between the first two clauses and the third one. 
It is often assumed that riches is being compared to more riches, meaning that if the Jews' failure has brought riches to the Gentiles, then the Jews' fullness, read numerical fullness, will bring the Jews even greater riches. That is incorrect. In view of the other eight New Testament uses of this phrase, Passo Malone, such a view is extremely unlikely, as all eight of them mean how much more likely. And Romans 11:24, which uses the same phrase, is identical to that of verse 12. And thus the meaning is, if or since the Jews sin and loss means riches to the Gentiles, how much more likely is it that the Jews' fullness of salvation will mean riches for themselves, that is, the saved Jews? When the false riches to greater riches concept is rejected, and the fact that there are no verbs in the clauses of verse 12 and thus no future aspect, and the fact that neither the word failure nor the word fullness have any numerical connotation, are all stripped away. There is no joy left here for the premillennialist. There is not going to be an in mass conversion of Jews, not ever. The term fullness is a reference to qualitative fullness, not quantitative fullness. It refers to being filled with the spiritual fullness of salvation. In the New Testament, fullness, pleroma, never refers to full number. Instead, it always refers to completeness or abundance. Besides all that, completeness or abundance is far more consistent with the context of these verses. The idea here is that since the transgression of the Jews has brought salvation or spiritual riches to the Gentiles and given them reason to rejoice, Paul hopes that maybe the Gentiles' riches of salvation will cause some, even all, Jews to one by one reconsider and obey the gospel. If they do become believers in Jesus, how much more likely is it that their complete salvation will result in their spiritual riches? The churches in Rome are made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But Paul directs this argument specifically to the Gentile believers for two reasons. First, the extended argument from 9 and 1 has been largely directed to the Jews, and Paul does not want the Gentiles to disregard his words as of little consequence to them. He does not want the Gentiles to adopt the same self-righteous attitude expressed by the unbelieving Jews. Second, Paul wants the Gentiles to recognize that not only have they reaped the benefits of the Jews' rejection of Jesus and the gospel, that is, their own salvation, but also in God's all-seeing wisdom, both he and they can work together in hopes that some Jews might yet be brought to Christ and to salvation. So he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my office. 
Paul hopes that by preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and their acceptance of it, he can provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they will desire the same riches of salvation bestowed on obedient Gentiles. However, he is not so wildly optimistic as the dispensationalists who see the Jews turning to Christ on a national scale. Paul hopes that he might save some of them. That's what he said. According to Rogers and Rogers, a post, it, if by any means, indicates a hesitant expectation. When Paul says he pursues his ministry in the hope that somehow he may save some Jews, he knows this will not be automatic. His expression is one of hesitant expectation because he is aware that unbelieving Jews of his generation are hardened and they are strongly resistant to the gospel. But more telling, he knows every person is a free moral agent and must choose to become a Christian of his own free will. Consequently, he speaks in language of potentiality and in the modest hope that some of his nation might be saved. Verse 15 is Paul's summation of this paragraph. The first part of the verse focuses on the spiritual riches enjoyed by the Gentiles. The second part of the verse focuses on the salvation of those individual Jews who might be converted by the gospel. The word casting away means rejection, reprobation, or loss. The meaning is similar to if the fall of them in verse 12. An apparent contextual contradiction with Romans 11, 1 and 2 arises here for both of those verses, verse 1 and 2, clearly say that God has not cast away his people. Whereas this verse says just as clearly, if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, meaning that those who are Paul's flesh are cast away. The solution is not difficult if we keep in mind three things. First of all, God's people, whom he has not cast away, verse 1 and 2, are different from the Jews God has cast away. Those in verses 1 and 2, whom God has not cast away, are believing or Christian Jews like Paul. Those in verse 15 are unbelieving Jews. It must be recognized that there is no future tense verb here, and thus there is no reason to expect those phrases to anticipate, quote, some stupendous eschatological event. Then he says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, there's no future tense verb here that might lead us to expect some future event. Literally, we have what the acceptance the question is, if the rejection by God of unbelieving Jews resulted in the salvation of the believing Gentiles, what would God's acceptance of repentance Jews into a saving relationship be, if not a resurrection from the dead? This is again, this resurrection from the dead, is not a reference to some eschatological event but the ongoing salvation of individual Jews one by, converted one by one as they obey the gospel 
and become Christians. Cottrell quotes Wright saying, When a Gentile comes into the family of Christ, it is as it were a, quote, creatio ex nihilo, that is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.21, but when a Jew comes in, it is like a resurrection. In verse 16 here, there are two metaphors opening this paragraph, both making the point that any Jew who abides not in unbelief can still be saved if he will turn to Christ and the gospel in faithful obedience. The first metaphor is taken from Numbers 15, verses 17 to 21, where the Israelites were instructed to offer the first fruits of their produce in the promised land as a sacrifice. The lump refers to the ethnic Jews as a whole. The message is not a uh, promise of conversion on a national scale. Rather, it means that if God accepted the early Jewish converts as the first fruits, that is, the 3,000 Pentecostians and all that are converted in Acts 1 through 9, then he will accept any later Jew, even all of them, who forsakes his unbelief and becomes a uh, an obedient believer in Christ. The second metaphor describes the interdependent relationship between a tree's root and its branches. This figure differs slightly, and the root stands for the Old Testament nation of Israel as a whole, its branches stand for individual Jews living in the Christian age. The meaning is that under the Old Testament, God chose the nation of Israel to be his servant through whom he would work out his redemptive plan, bringing the Messiah into the world. Even though that purpose has already been completed and now is no longer an active special purpose for Israel's existence as a nation, God's love and concern for his Old Testament people carries over into the New Testament era. Every branch, that is, every individual Jew, is just as personally precious and special to God as was the entire nation in Old Testament times. Again, the point Paul is driving home here is that the door of salvation yet remains open for each and every or any hardened unbelieving Jew who will turn to become a believer. Following up on this, the point of the next paragraph is designed to show exactly how any or even all individual Jews can be saved one by one. In this new paragraph, Paul continues to use his metaphor of the olive tree introduced in verse 16. It is a metaphor of both judgment and hope. In it, we see how the Lord's church is related to Old Testament Israel and how Jews and Gentiles are related in the church. Verses 17 to 22 reveal a double warning to the Gentile Christians. One, do not allow yourselves to have an attitude of self-righteous superiority toward the unbelieving Jews. Two, do not presume that you are any more immune to falling away from Jesus than they were. Verse 23 and 24 provide an illustration as to how the fallen and hardened Jews can be saved. The olive tree is an obvious choice 
for establishing these arguments for three reasons. It is familiar as both Jeremiah and Hosea compare God's people to an olive tree, being the tree most widely cultivated in the Mediterranean region, it would be familiar to Paul's initial readers. And third, it was a common practice to graft branches from one olive tree to another. In general, the olive tree represents the people of God, both Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, composed of both Jews and Gentiles, the root stands for the nation of Israel as a whole throughout the history as God's covenant servant, bringing the Messiah into the world and not as a nation of saved people. But it is the branches that are in focus in this metaphor. The branches represent all the saved individuals of the Christian age. The New Testament branches could have no existence apart from the Old Testament root. The agricultural imagery of pruning unproductive branches and grafting new ones in the place of those lopped off describes the salvation of Jews and Gentiles in the Christian age. Jewish Christians belong naturally to the cultivated olive tree. Gentile Christians are pictured as belonging by nature to a wild olive tree and being grafted into a cultivated tree. Let me see here. Am I up to date? Thank you. Paul makes this grafting process, he makes two points here. First, Gentile Christians pictured as wild olive branches grafted into a cultivated tree have no room for boasting of their superiority over the Jewish branches pruned away. Verses 17 to 22. If they should turn away from Christ, they too will be cut off just like the unbelieving Jews. Second, continuing the message of verses 11 to 16, the Jews who have been cut off because of their unbelief are not hopelessly lost. They can still be saved, if they turn from unbelief to faith, the branches lopped off because of their unbelief can be grafted back into the olive tree. And this grafting is done one branch at a time as individual Jews come to believe in the Messiah when and if they do. This has nothing to do with any national conversion at any time. It is open to all and every Jew at any time or place as an individual. This is the beginning of an if-then clause, verse 17a. The if here is in verse 17, it's properly called a protasis. The then clause is found in verse 18, it's properly called an apodosis. The figure states, an if clause, which is assumed to be true, and then announces the resultant then clause as what naturally follows. Paul begins by asserting that some of the natural branches, individual Jews, have been cut off of the cultivated tree because of unbelief. In fact, it is really more than some who had rejected Jesus. It's nearly all. The you here 
in the second uh, part of verse 17 is the typical Christian Gentile. Paul addresses the Gentiles with a singular and specific you in order to make his warning on a more personal level. These Gentile believers were grafted into God's olive tree among the natural branches of the believing Jews. And with them, they became a partaker of the fat root and fatness of the olive tree. When a Gentile believer, a Gentile became a believer, he immediately began to partake of all the spiritual blessings made possible by 2,000 years of Jewish history. That is all the blessings that are a natural inheritance for the Jews who accept the Messiah. And then in verse 18, the apodosis appears, or the then clause. The conclusion to be drawn from verse 17 is that since each Gentile is a branch from a wild olive tree, since each one has been grafted into a cultivated tree because he believes in Jesus, and since each partakes of the nourishment of the root, he or she has no reason to boast over either those natural branches broken off because of their unbelief, or those natural branches among which they have been grafted. Their being grafted in is not because of some merit of their own. The Gentiles are in no way superior to those who have been broken off uh, or over those who remain. Then he says in verse 18b, if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, the root supports you. Paul is saying that if the Gentiles do boast in spite of his admonition, they must remember the root of the tree supports their spiritual life. It is not the other way around. Every blessing of salvation that they now enjoy in spite of their own personal unworthiness comes to them through the Jews. As Paul anticipates his representative Gentile Christian, he puts words into his mouth that highlight the self-righteous arrogance that he wants to turn aside. The branches broken off were not cut off to make a place for Gentile believers as though they had some special merit. Verse 20 says, well said. This means that there's some truth to what you're saying. This qualified agreement with the Gentiles' assertion in verse 19 is, yes, but this is not the whole story. The Gentile observation is correct, but he may draw the wrong conclusion. Yes, it is true that many Jews were broken off. It is also true that the Gentiles were grafted in, but there is no cause and effect sequence here. The Jews were not broken off so that the Gentiles could be grafted in as though the Gentiles were somehow more worthy than the Jews. Their standing is because of their faith in Jesus. Their standing has nothing to do with unbelieving Jews being cut off. Paul is warning the Gentile believers that they must regard the fallen, unbelieving Jews 
must not regard the fallen unbelieving Jews with contempt or arrogance, but instead they should fear God in the sense of reverential respect that issues in faithful obedience, or they also will suffer a similar fate. Paul holds before them all the real possibility of their falling from grace and losing their salvation. Gentile Christians must humbly recognize that if God cut off the natural branches from his olive tree because of their faithless disobedience, he will certainly not spare the wild olive branches grafted into the tree if those branches become unbelieving or unfruitful or disobedient. The security of the believer is always conditioned on faithful obedience for all of his life. Paul warns Christians, do not be arrogant. Be afraid. Paul warns his representative Gentile Christian to consider the kindness and sternness of God because these are the two basic attributes God expresses toward sinners. Just which one he expresses in any particular case depends on the sinner's response to the extension of God's grace that is offered in his Son. In this context, God expresses his severity towards those Jews who have refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and who continue to reside in stubborn, disobedient unbelief, trusting in their own merit. On the other hand, he expresses his abundant, abundant loving kindness and goodness toward those Gentiles who have believed in Jesus and have obeyed the gospel. He cuts off the unbelieving Jews and he grafts into his olive tree those believing Gentiles. And so the scripture says, on those who fail severity but toward you goodness, if you continue in this goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. For a believer to continue in God's goodness, he must continue to trust God's kindness as it is expressed in the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. He must continue to recognize that he has not been saved by his own merit but on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice in paying the penalty of his sins. He must continue in humble, obedient submission to God's will, and he must be constant in repentance of his sins, and he must never put his trust in himself, or even his faith, or his obedience as meritorious. If the believer fails to, merit these to meet these conditions... Paul is clear about what will happen. He also will be cut off and lost as has already happened to these unbelieving Jews. However, about those Jews who were cut off. In verses 23 and 24, Paul now returns to the main theme of the chapter as he brings to a close the metaphor of the olive tree. It is not God who has rejected the Jews, but the Jews who have rejected God's grace. Because of their unbelief, God has hardened, rejected, and broken off their branches from his olive tree. Obviously, God has not irrevocably 
consigned all unbelieving Jews to hell. The door of opportunity stands open to each one as long as he lives. God is ready and willing to receive the Jew back into fellowship with him at any time. It is equally clear that God's offer of renewed acceptance is conditioned upon each individual Jew or Jew's change of heart, his repentance concerning the Messiahship of Jesus and all that it implies relative to the gospel. Verse 23 shows that being on the olive tree is equivalent to being saved. There are no unbelievers on the olive tree. All believers are on it. The clear and conditional nature of this promise cannot be ignored. The grafting in again of the Jews is not an absolute promise. It is conditioned upon their turning from unbelief to faithful obedience. Furthermore, this conditional promise is not national. Paul is not suggesting that sometime in the future all Jews will be saved. He is teaching that any individual Jew who turns from unbelief to faith may be saved. There is no promise that such might happen even in one case. And there is absolutely nothing here about the restoration of national Israel. This verse sums up Paul's argument thus far by reinforcing the last phrase of verse 23, which indicates that God is able to regraft into their own olive tree those Jewish branches which were broken off because of their unbelief. However, the condition of verse 23 stands, they must become believers and all that that entails. The second part of verse 24 does not amount to an entitlement. It must not be taken as an absolute promise that even one Jew will be saved, let alone that all of them will be. The passage of Scripture is not predictive prophecy of the Jews' return to Christ, either individually or especially in mass. It is rather a warning to Gentile Christians about the danger of arrogance. If you doubt this, check verses 19 to 24 again. The salvation of anyone and everyone is conditioned upon faithful continuance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you. I don't often finish with two minutes left, but there it is.